chapter 26, starting in verse 1. I'll give you a little time to scroll through or prepare yourself, but while you're getting into Acts 26, this week, Monday, we come out of last week's event, Monday morning, first thing, the Holy Spirit's like tabbing me. He's, he's like right on it, already ready to present for today. And I think that when you see what we're experiencing today, you know, a different dynamic than what we're used to, you'll see very clearly the import of this word. And, I, you know, you don't, a lot of times with the Lord, He doesn't just want, um, He doesn't just want you to take up a position or recognize a problem, but He wants to take His own person and put Himself into you in the middle of what you're going through. And today, when we look at the unpredictable nature of God, yeah. <laughs> that God would even make our even our event today unpredictable, yeah. and He would uh, even set us up so that the very uh, word that is preached to you in this setting would uh, flow from His own self and not from a man. That he would have this message to be a particular way, and even he would set the stage, so to speak, proverbially speaking, with no stage. And we wouldn't even have a stage in a sense because nothing would be staged except that he himself would be demonstrated uh, to the powers of the air through uh, the speaking of this word. Because no flesh is going to glory in the presence of the Lord. None. And as uncomfortable, I'll admit that it is for me. And maybe you feel that uncomfortability. I'd rather have him than my yes. own predictability. Yes. Amen. It's true. And I, I can feel you now. <laughs> I know you're with me. Because yes. you know when he's with you, and he's with the speaking of this, it would be delivered, I pray, in power. So it would impact us. Because where we're headed, Church of the Living God, is not maybe the way that we have presupposed it to be. And we must be ready at a moment's notice, stripped down with nothing, maybe with everything. It doesn't matter because we have who? Him. Won't you be my neighbor? I want someone I can be close to that doesn't need all the accoutrements of life or whatever or has them all. It doesn't matter. I want to be with you alone, cave, cathedral, closet, castle, whatever. I want to be with you. And I want you to be with me where I'm at. Where are you, Lord? So, Paul, you know, so back in Monday morning, I'm like, I'm reeling off of uh, Gus Vickery's testimony Sunday. The power of the Spirit that moves in this pavilion last Sunday. I'm wrecked myself. I'm like, Lord, you've established a footstool into your work. You know, the powers and principalities of the air don't want to hear a testimony like that. That the good doctor delivered. Yeah. He doesn't want to hear a man give up everything for Christ. He a fight you tooth and nail for your testimony. He wants a people filled with courage completely divested of self and filled with the fullness of who he is. This is what he's after. Uh, you end time remnant, 
And it was after a man who we're going to partake of some of his own origin story. Now, like this, Lineker, the Lineker, uh, a number of weeks ago, he said, Oh, that's your origin story, Carol. Because I was sharing some of the story of how I was called into the ministry. And I said, Oh, I never thought of it like that. But he said, it, and I'm paraphrasing uh, Pete, that uh, there's these uh, repetitions that take place in our origin story with God. Maybe another way to say it is, as God has been working in your life, it was like I saw like a, I saw like uh, in the entry point where God intervened into my life. He, he made this like understanding to me. And let's just say it was just like this little understanding, like the size of an inch. But then you go on with the Lord sometime, and I don't know if you track things the way I do, but now that inch has grown into like a, a few inches, and your expansion of your understanding of what God began in you now is starting to expand. And you say, I've arrived. The Lord said, not so. And you go on a little bit more in faith, and you're trusting the Lord, and now the one inch turned into three inch, and now it's seven inches or whatever. You understand what I'm saying? Because there's an expansion in your consciousness of what God had did outside of space-time as it intervened into your story, uh, his story. And he was wanting to say something, and, and now the fullness or more of the fullness is beginning to open up to you of who you are and who he is in you. And it begins to get a little bit overwhelming. So, uh, Acts 26. So, Agrippa. Now, Agrippa is a king. He is the king of in Israel proper. Over him is Festus, who is the governor of the uh, like Roman section there in that area, I believe, of Galilee, uh, Jerusalem, th that area. And so, even though Agrippa is a king, uh, they have a Roman... Uh, a Roman authority that sits over them. And so I just want you to understand what's happening here because Paul is going to a Hebrew or Israeli king to make his case or present his defense before uh, this King Agrippa. And so King Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul held out his hand, and he began his defense. Regarding all the things I have been accused of by the Jews, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that I'm about to make my defense before you today. It's a very polite thing to say. Actually, he's not very arrogant. Because you are especially familiar with the customs and the controversial issues of the Jews. Now, I did some reading on this this week because, well, I don't get this very many times. The words let me know something of the message before I got here today. So I thought, oh, I could do a little bit of background study. Uh, that's why I knew about King Agrippa and Festus. They wanted, even if they had to put a so-called king in place, someone who was equipped and understood Jewish Mindset and Hebraic understanding and the way Israel thought in that day because, you know, it's Roman. These Romans, 
What do they know about the culture of the Jew? What do they know about their uh, feast days and their moon cycles and they have a very particular custom that's been established, you know, back from the old covenant that they're abiding by, and uh, these guys are coming in and over them, and uh, basically the Roman Empire is on top of an authority over God's people. And I'll tell you that kind of thing just to start out with is not comfortable to hardly anybody. I mean. No one wants someone else to be in charge of them, especially the person that doesn't get you and doesn't understand you. And some foreign invader comes in and wait a minute, we have the word of the Lord in our mouths. We're the people of God. And this guy, you don't even know Festus? What kind of name is that anyway? Sorry if any of y'all named your kid Festus. But I mean, it's not like, you know, who is this Roman authority coming in and presuming over us? Are we not the ones who crossed the Red Sea? I mean, are we not God's own sons and daughters? You, you see, and in, in this way, why would God himself choose to put us in a, under an empire of this kind? Was it Jesus? You know, wasn't he coming to release us from empire, liberate us and rebuild empire? If you've ever been under authority and the authority doesn't get you, <laughs> uh, husbands and wives, <laughs> I mean, my wife might be able to see 27 other things that I don't see. <laughs> Probably does even right now. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, the Lord puts me in authority in my home. And she might be way more equipped than I am. Why? Why does God do this, and why is this the setup here? I want you to see this right off the bat. Because God is after humility. He's after a complete and utter dependence on himself. And so sometimes he's allowed even a foreign thing to come in. Now people, they don't like to hear this, but I tell you, the Lord is into the cross. He's into complete dependency. He himself's not an oppressor. And he's bringing up people into a place where, and I'll say it like this, I'll say it like he said it to me. Do you want affliction or do you want affection? Affection, Lord. Well, you're going to have affliction unless you turn your complete and utter self towards me. So what has Paul been allowed? What is going on here with the Roman system over the Hebrews? God's turning a people's affection towards himself. He's going to open up their eyes so that they can see this crucified nature and his own very nature of the Godhead, this nature of love. And so i got to have this guy, and it's a very favorable thing to when someone else kind of gets you. Because if you've lived your life going around being completely unknown, it's kind of difficult because you want people to understand your story. And Paul, God has allowed Paul to be able to talk to a guy that maybe kind of gets him. So here we go. 
Now all the Jews know the way I live from my youth, spending my life from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. We know who Paul's daddy is and Paul's granddaddy is. You know, some of y'all grow up in towns like that. Uh, we know your mom and daddy. We know your name. They know because they know me from the time past. If they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. I am the most strictest when it comes to the law. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. Concerning this hope, the Jews are accusing me, your majesty. Why do you people think that it's unbelievable that God can raise the dead? Of course, I myself was convinced of the same thing. I was convinced that it was necessary to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus, this Nazarene. And that is what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons by the authority I received from the chief priests, but also cast my vote against them when they were sentenced to death. I punished them often in the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. Because I was so fiercely enraged at them, I went to persecute them even in foreign cities. While doing this very thing, I was on to Damascus. On a road going to Damascus with authority, complete power from the chief priests. About noon along the road, your majesty, I saw a light. You ever been so dark? You ever been so dark to you? I saw it too, Lord. I saw it. I, I know it's light. It was up at our house in the mountains. And it's pitch black in my consciousness. And I remember. And I thought everything was going to end. That there was no hope. That we were never going to make it. Our family wasn't going to make it. And I, I made this thing in myself that I was determined I was going to follow this man. This man, Jesus. I was going to follow him. I, I made my determination. I made my mind up. I, I'm not playing around. I remember I was standing in front of our uh, cabinet in our bedroom. Everything was dark. Life was raining in and life was hard and everything was dark. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of the darkness, this one little pixel of light opens up to my consciousness. And out comes this light, little ray of light and it hits my soul. And I knew, I knew that there was one that was outside of everything that we knew, and I knew him to be God. And I got touched by him that day. You know, 
it's not the person who like goes and does their own thing and, and does their own thing and sins against God. No. It's this it's this one who's motivated to serve him like Paul. It's it's all of our willingness to do the Christian thing, to go and be uh, seen doing and for doing for God that God has to kill. And that's what he was killing in me. Uh, he's going to he's going to take that that thing out of us because so many of us have run from him. But it's another thing when you run towards him, and and even in your trying to do everything you can to serve him, and you give him everything you got, you know, you put everything you got into it. And it comes up short. The glory, the glory of this God who says, I want to do it for you and through you. Do you yeah. see? I, I'm wanting to come out of, uh, I want sons and daughters living out of Zion. Not Sinai anymore. I don't need you to be seen doing something for me. Or in my behalf or trying to work for me, I want to work through you. Did I not choose you? And I, I don't know why it is why we all had to come to the end of our self. Even our desire to serve him is not stronger than he himself in, in us. Even our desire to be seen doing is not more powerful than the uncreated God shining His light out of us. This is what Paul is providing himself because we can't, many of us can't understand how a man would be, because so many in today's culture, they're just goofing off about God. They don't care about the Lord. They don't give a flip. They do their own thing every day. They're so blinded by that. So then you get this guy that's like, I'm a Pharisee. I'm like going to put all in. You see what I mean? And it's it's not going to work. <laughs> no. all, all of it's not going to work. It's going to take the Lord Himself. It's going to draw us down to the end of everything we can do. I thought that that was the most foolish thing I'd ever heard. I thought, that is, that is not the way to do a church plant, Lord. Now, people aren't going to get on with that. They'll volunteer. They'll give their offerings. They'll get involved. If they can just see someone who will just get up there and be that guy for them, they'll all get around that vision. Not mine. Not my vision. Not my light. No, because I'm wanting to come down. And I need a people that will basically let me have them. And Paul, he's saying here, I'm persecuting the same guy these guys have been. I'm, I'm trying to like, what he's trying to say is, I'm just like them. I've not been any different than the chief priest myself. I've not been any different than the one persecuting Nazarene. Uh, if anything, I'm the uh, chief guy on it. I don't like that feeling of weakness, Lord. I don't like that feeling of being left high and dry, Lord. 
I don't like that feeling of dependency. And I'm going to rail against it anywhere I can go because I'm going to keep on building out my thing and secure myself. But then, I, I don't know, something happens to me. I'm on this road, and next thing you know, I'm traveling, and it's light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining everywhere around me and those traveling with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice in the Aramaic. I didn't know God spoke in Aramaic. <laughs> saw, saw. And let me tell you something. I study this in the Word. If God calls your name twice, you've been chosen. When the man comes down and he calls your name twice, well, he's picked you out in advance. Hey, Saul, Saul. Hey, listen. Why are you persecuting me? You're hurting yourself. You're kicking against the goad. And so I said this to him. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replied, I am. I am whom you're persecuting. Get up and stand on your feet. Uh, for I've appeared to you for this reason. If you haven't heard the last few sermons, please go on the podcast, Black It Project, and listen to 105, 106. Today's 107. About the Lord standing up when Stephen stoned to death. Right here in the text, he says to Paul, Now get up. Now, I don't know how this man can process this fast. Get up and stand up. Stand on your feet, Tom McManus. I mean, stand up. Oh, man of God. Man of God. Stand up. For I've appeared to you for this reason. To designate you in advance. I picked you out in advance. Stand up. Stand up. Everybody. Stand up. Stand up. Stand up. Why did I come and appear to you? I appear to you for a reason. I came to designate you in advance. I picked you before the foundation of the world. I selected you. I I pro-kehepso you. Kehepso you. I picked you as a pro-heir. We've heard the confession of a professing professional last week. But God wants you as his one that will inherit his very own glory. He selected you and it bets to be a servant and a witness. The martyrion. I selected you to be a servant. I selected you as doulos for myself. I picked you for me. 
I wanted you to witness, bear witness to this thing that you see. So what you've seen, I wanted you to see. I'm going to rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm going to rescue you from the Jews and the Gentiles. What? I'm going to rescue them, you from all of them for me. Because I love you. And I chose you. I chose you for me. Do you understand this origin story of you? That God picked you. Everything flows from this. Everything flows from this light. I was picked out in advance. No, I was picked out in advance before the world was even created. God chose you uh, right now to be here for himself. Why? Because I'm going to deal with the darkness of this age. And I'm going to bring the light. I'm your light. I'm the light of the earth. And this, it says, in light we what? You know this in the Psalms? We see light. I'm sending you. I am going to open the eyes so that they will turn from darkness into light and from the power of Satan to God. So that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and share among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You can sit down. What? By faith in me. King Agrippa, listen to me. I have not been disobedient to the heavenly call. This vision came to me and I will not disobey it. I saw this light and I declared it in those to Damascus first and then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds consistent with this repentance. For this reason... Because Paul preached this message, they seized him. They seized him. In the temple courts, and they tried to kill me. Uh, does it sound familiar to what we heard about Stephen a few weeks ago? Stephen standing there. Preaches this message of repentance. He preaches a very similar message. Another pastor was telling me this week, if you study the messages of Acts, you're going to see that they all have a very similar uh, mechanism or situation going on in every single message. God died because you killed him. He raised from the dead. Tell him you're sorry. You killed him. He died. He's resurrected. Repent. I like this. Later on there in 24, Paul's exclaiming these things in defense. In his defense, Festus exclaims loudly. You know, the Roman consort or whatever. I love this. 
You've lost your mind, Paul. Your great learning has made you completely insane. <laughs> Let's pray. I'm ready to start now. Oh, Lord. Thank you for today. Thank you for this introduction. Thank you for this, your people. Thank you for you. Take us into this understanding with you. Open, reveal yourself to us. Open our eyes. In your name we pray, amen. That may be the longest introduction you've ever heard. But we're getting warmed up. And I hope you're getting warmed up. I, uh, so back to Monday morning, he's like, you're going to be in Acts 26, particularly verse 16. But he takes me into uh, an article that I'd read, I, I read back in 2018. And I, I want to share a portion of this article with you this morning. The name of the article is Unpredictable. Three Days of the Condor, Information Theory, and the Remaking of a Professional Ideology. It comes. It was written by Abigail Cheever on November the 6th, 2018. This was brought to me in a moment with the Lord when I was trying to understand what He was saying to me about this process of our development with him, a lot of it being how this light works. And uh, as I was being exposed to this light, and uh, and there's a, I don't know if it's a journal or it's like an online sort of periodical or articles that are written by something called Post 45. Now this is not inherently Christian in any way, but the Lord used it to help me to understand something. And he asked me to, Use this to help you this morning. And so I'm going to read a little bit of what she wrote. as She's making comments about Sidney Pollack's spy thriller, Three Days of the Condor, that came out back in 1975. Have any of you seen that? Some of you are nodding your head. Uh, I'm not up here to imply that you should watch that film or not. That's not my purpose here. I have a point that the Lord wants me to land today, and I need to go there, and so I'm going to uh, go through this. A third of the way through Sidney Pollock's spy thriller, Three Days of the Condor, written in 1975, the uh, freelance assassin that's in the film, his name, or his name is Javert, uh, I believe a French name, he explains to his client his difficulty in locating a CIA researcher codenamed Condor, which was played by Robert Redford. He went on the run after Javet had uh, murdered his entire unit in an early moment of the film. He makes this statement, Condor is an amateur. Javet explains, he's lost, he's unpredictable, perhaps he's even sentimental. He could fool a professional. Well, not deliberately, she says, but or he says, but precisely because he's lost. He doesn't even know what to do. Now, in the film, if, if you've seen it, I, I ended up watching it because I got interested in this, but what the CIA team was doing was they were taking and reading books, novels that had been written, 
And they were looking for plotline narratives inside of the novels to see if they could figure out how their enemy would maybe build a narrative or a structure of narrative for the way that they would play their spy game. Because Solomon said it, nothing's new under the sun. And so if we could pick up a plot narrative out of reading all these novels, this CIA group that was in uh, incognito was, we'll find a plot narrative. And then what they were doing, they were feeding it into this machine. And this machine supposedly is going to spit out how to prepare for a counter sort of understanding of their enemy. And so this is what they're doing. Uh, do you imagine, like, uh, being assigned to the CIA, and they say, we, Kara, you're assigned to the CIA. We want you to read novels for us. Find a structure in the narrative of the novel that is new to you, and then go plug it into this machine. It'll spit out a thing, and then we'll send it up and see if this makes sense to anyone because this narrative is different than what we're used to. Maybe they'll play an angle. We can play an angle against our enemy. Sounds like, you know, trying to find a needle in a haystack to me, but this was the nature of the film. And so, Condor, uh, the guy here, Condor, he's one of these CIA analysts. But he's not exactly like everybody else that's a part of the uh, analyst team. And so I'll go through some more of this. So against the backdrop of the Lincoln Memorial, this scene establishes the first in a series of distinctions that you find in the film between a professional ideology and that of, uh, of an amateur, which they're going to make Condor, the guy who's doing this, an amateur. And a distinction that here hinges primarily on the difference in knowledge, but is going to expand to include several other qualities. Okay, so the amateur, according to Jovet, now Jovet, remember, is the assassin, that's hunting this team to kill them and stop them from what they're doing. Jovet's going to make this statement. He says, the amateur is lost. He's lost in a world of covert operations and he doesn't know what to do. But this ignorance brings with it unexpected benefits. He's unschooled in the practice of spycraft. Condor avoids becoming, in Jove's word, predictable. It was this unpredictability in the film that ends up saving his life. Because during Jove's original assault on his unit, because Jove's a professional assassin, he hunts, he kills. And he says, Condor breaks all the regulations and snuck out the back door to go to lunch. And it provides him with the canniest solution in the moments when Jove gets too close. If to quote Bernard Gladstein, I got this kind of highlighted things, the historian writing the year after Condor's release, a professional person such as Jove, and listen here, grasps the concept behind a functional activity. What is a professional? If any of you in here are business professionals or have professional whatever, you understand what this is. And, and maybe if you're not a business professional, you may understand this. But kind of the duty of professionalism is to see behind and grasp concepts that sit behind functional activity. 
Why does a professional do that? Efficiency! Who said it? Thank you. Yes, we're looking for efficiency, the professional is. He's wanting to see if I could get point this to point that to point that to point that, we'll get it done uh, quicker, right? With your company. I mean, you know, how do we make these widgets and put all these widgets together faster in our workstations and then get output quicker, right? That's the work of a professional is efficiency. So what he, it allows him both to perceive and predict, which is really important in business, by the way, to have some predictors out there to figure out how things are going to go. Why? Because of the bottom line. Because <laughs> if you don't get it right, your bottom line is in the red instead of in the black. Y'all know what I mean? Uh, I think you know what I mean. And if I could, as a professional, predict unseen variables, and how, who wouldn't pay for that, you know? Who's the prophetic guy on the team that could figure out the unseen variables? I mean, we might not call him a prophetic guy, we might call him a CFO, I don't know. We might call him something else, or COO, Chief of Operations. But we got that guy, you want that guy on your team that can kind of sort of put all these predictors in and analyze the unseen variable so we can determine the entire system and make the system function right. Right, Lineker? Three does of the condor suggest that the amateur's ignorance of those variables provides him with a certain freedom of action. If you've ever been put in management positions or owned your own company, you're like, man, I really liked it back in the day when I didn't have to do that. <laughs> You know, it's almost like easier for me not to have to do all that. That guy that just gets to go build his little thing and go home every day, he's living the life. That amateur. <laughs> the amateur might not make an educated decision, but neither will he make an obvious one. Joe May's distinction between amateurs and professionals initially separates not only the untrained and naive, from the expert and the worldly, but also the upstanding and morally sound from the amoral Javet, or the ethically compromised Condor CIA colleagues. Now what happens here, and I'm reading fast, but what you begin to see in the film is professional and amateur kind of concept begins to break down. And so he's gonna, we're gonna dig down deeper into something else, and I want to paint this picture for you as I dig into the the text of scripture this morning. The difference between the ethically compromised, which you've heard me talk about this, it doesn't always have to be this way, but in this case, the CIA colleagues being right-based and Jovey, a moral left-based. Because what's happening in this film is Condor is being highlighted for a reason. Uh, Sidney Pollock is trying to make a statement. He's trying to, I, I believe, juxtapose the left and the right and show another path. And of course, that's my duty today too as well, which you'll hear me do this in all kinds of different ways, to show the path of the gospel. And so, we break this down just a little bit further. The CIA colleagues are very, very disciplined and what we would, might would call pharisaical. 
They know how to build systems. They're efficiency experts. You ever worked for one of those guys? You ever been one of those guys? Efficiency expert? <laughs> they come off kind of rough. Bottom line is, you know, and we want things that... And so we had his colleagues, uh, his CIA colleagues, and they're in there, and they're in there feeding the machine, and they're getting all this stuff done. There. But, you know, they have a standardized time when they take lunch. They have, they have a standardized time when they do anything. Everything is mapped out. A friend of mine this week, he said he knew a guy that flew for the, uh, in Vietnam, flew F-4 Phantoms. He said uh, he was combat pilot. And I, you know, I'm a pilot, and I've flown, but I have not flown in combat except up here. <laughs> but anyways, that being said, he told he told uh, he told my friend. He said his name is Charlie. Charlie told him. He said Charlie said, I'm going to wake up in one hour and 52 minutes. He said that man woke up in one hour and 52 minutes. I mean, that guy knew exactly when he was going to do whatever he did, and it was down to precision, precision math. Because I'll tell you, actually, after flying aircraft, things have to be precision. Or the thing's coming out of the air, and it's uh, you're going to die. And so uh, you have this side of these CIA colleagues that are very professional, supposedly, getting her done efficiency experts. But in the film, because they take the lunch at a certain time, Joe Bay's already mapped those guys and figured them all out. I mean, he's been studying them. He knows their routine. They're very routine-oriented. They do the same thing every day at the exact same time, and it's just easy as pie for Jove to go in and knock them all off, and so he does. But Condor, he's like, you know, I don't want to do lunch like everybody else does. I'm going out the back door, and he does, gets on a bicycle while his whole unit is taken out. Condor's unit is not any different, really, than the way... Paul is. And our enemy isn't really any different than the way Jovet is. He's studying your predictability. And then the Lord says, Hear it, hear it. And the just shall live by faith. <laughs> Here I have been trying to think that my Christianity was somehow going to be predictable. <laughs> what, that God was trying to make you into a CIA professional efficiency unit so that your enemy could just easily pick you off? He's got you. He's watching. He's I know. I know what you're going to do. I'm watching you every day. You do the same thing every day. And the Lord's like, I'm wanting to give you the insight. I got a narrative for you, one you've never even written or seen or heard. It's not even in the books. It's in the book. It's my story written into you. I'm wanting to break your routine up. I don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Where's our worship leader? <laughs> I was just like, that's what I need. I'm... <laughs> Well, what are you going to be preaching today? What do you think? What do you think I'm going to make, what? 
It's going to be the same thing that's been for 106 meetings. And you're going to deliver this sermon? No. Mm -mm. I'm going to make you all feel like, oh, oh we're a seed of misery. Get us back into predictability. <laughs> the distinction between amateur and a professional, it does break down, he's saying, which suggests that Jove represents a binary opposition is in fact, it says, a continuum and mapping the movement from one pole to the other, amateur to professional, ethical to the compromise, is the central function of the narrative. Again, compromise Jove, compromise Lucifer, ethical Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, Condor. I do have a podcast called Moby Condor. It's really good. It helps in this area. You can listen to it sometime. I'm not going to go into that necessarily, but they're caught up into this geopolitical intrigue, uh, she writes, and that's very common in spy narratives. says uh, Michael Denning argues that have, and since the 1960s, frequently served as cover story for white-collar work a means to think about and through the professional managerial class, or uh, what we could shorten this up, the PMC. Three Days of the Condor is notable for how little cover it bothers to provide. The, the film's explicit critique of the professionalized CIA allowed its filmmakers, in the words of the director, Sidney Pollack, to explore certain ideas of suspicion, trust, morality, using the CIA as a metaphor and drawing certain conclusion even because it was done in post-Watergate America. Now, some of you were here for that, some of us were not. I myself was right there in the middle of it, born. Those conclusions were familiar in post-Watergate America. By the mid-1970s, the professional managerial class, the ideologies that legitimized it, and the techno technocracy over which it presided had become the subjects of considerable academic and popular scrutiny. The United States failure in Vietnam, the oppositions posed to the post-war status quo by the civil rights, women, uh, women's liberation, the student and countercultural movements, and the corruption exposed by the Watergate scandal raised significant questions about the PMC, the professional classes, claim to represent, she writes in Alvin Ward Goldner's phrase, the paradigm of virtuous and legitimate authority performing with technical skill and with this dedicated concern for the society at large. What, what, what was happening in our culture? What's been going on in our culture? We don't trust those guys, those efficiency experts. I mean, it's been, it's really, really been getting undermined in our culture now. Okay, don't trust the PMC. But hey, for goodness sakes, don't trust the left either. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Because uh, you're going to see in the text today how the Lord's got a path to point us to. Because uh, he told me it's not enough to tell my people what not to do. Tell them how to do it. <laughs> how to walk with me. Don't just tell them what's wrong. Lead them to me. 
But sometimes the Lord wants to make a point about what's wrong so that we can see it so clearly that we won't be given over to it. Uh, many Americans have concurred with the notion, as described by Paul Goodman, that the PMC workers uh, were not beholden to the nature of things and bound by explicit or implicit oaths to benefit their clients and community. And I'm not saying this, that this is a case of all these cases. I'm not. No, please don't hear this from me because this, I'm reading what they wrote. But they have found out that many of them were liars, thinks, mystifiers, co-opted and corrupted by the system. And yet the film does differ from other spy narratives and post-Watergate critiques in further specifying this distinction between professionals and amateurs through Joe Bay's third term. And here it is. Unpredictability. Predictability and its opposite are these crucial concepts that are coming out in this film. And then later on she writes that technocracy though is the ideal men that usually uh, what they usually have in mind because they're striving for listen efficiency, social security, large-scale coordination of men and resources, forever higher levels of affluence, and even more impressive manifestations of the collective human power. And so what we what we have is if we can quantify information, and, then, and, and guys today, I don't know if you know what's going on in our culture. We're calling it artificial intelligence, that we can integrate with transhumanism, and if we can get all of these micropostulates and all these sub-things and all these predictability things figured out, we can become more efficient. And out of that efficiency, what can happen? We can gain more control. What? Control of what? People and resources. And it's, it's infiltrated our culture. And, you know, we, we think, well... I'm either going to go PMC or I'm going to go amateur. You know, I'm going to be a part of this class or that class. And the Lord's saying, no. You're the church of the living God. I have another path for you. And um, that's what I'm here for, is to preach about that path. That's what I'm commissioned to do. I'm commissioned by the Lord and sent by Him to show the duplicity of that left and right system. And show that there is a path in God that we have. That those are not our only options. There is a golden path called wisdom. There's a royal path and a royal family. We're not a part of the blue and the red party anymore. We're not trying to be more like Paul as he was before his conversion. We're not trying to be more efficient and get all these detailed things down? No. For the just shall live by faith. And so, you may be unpredictable. <laughs> because you're serving one who is unpredictable. You're not going to be able to map him out. You're not going to be able to figure him out. What you're going to do is you're, if you want, because he'll not impose this on you, you're going to worship him. And when you do, you're going to enter into spirit and truth. 
And you're going to get to know him that way on his ground. And you know what you're going to do with that? You're going to literally outsmart your enemy. He can't keep up with you. He don't know what your next move is. Because you just got it from heaven. You're a true Drew Covert Special Forces guy. You're the real deal, son. Right? So look at this. Acts 26, 16. But rise and stand on your feet. For I've appeared to you for this reason. I did this to designate you in advance as a servant and a witness to two things. Listen, if you take notes with me, I chose you, and the Greek word today is prokeherzo. It means to be chosen in advance. For two reasons, he said, Paul says, for things you have seen. That's a past tense thing. The Lord's not telling you to throw out everything that he's done in your life. Like I hear this message today, oh my Lord. Well, it is meant to kind of tell you not to trust the left and the right. That's what it's meant to do. But it's not saying that everything that you've seen of him that you shouldn't trust. And everything that he's laid into your life, he's saying, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to you to be a witness of the things you have seen. What? The things you've seen from heaven. The things you've seen of me. I want you to bear witness to it. I want you to testify about it. I made you a servant for this case. Number two, things in which I will appear to you. So the Lord is going to come and make appearances to you. You say, well, I haven't seen him in the flesh. Well, can a man see God and live? No, but by your spirit that's inside of you, he begins to come to you and make himself known to you. As you wait on him, he makes himself known, and in this way, he appears to you. He said this to me Monday. I'm walking. I got so excited. I'm like, I love this word. He said, from a professing professional, or a confessing professional, excuse me, a confessing, professing professional <laughs> to a pro heir. Oh, don't you like that better? Because inside of pro coherzo is, which means to be chosen out in advance, in the English it says pro heir. I mean, which one do you want to be? Do you just want to profess? Or do you want to have the full inheritance of the Father on you? The Father's not going to work through this professional thing because a light came to Paul and blasted him and put him on his backside. And he was the professional of his day and raised up a pro heir. <laughs> a man who's unpredictable. A God that you cannot predict. I think I think that what's happening to many of us is like, I just need some stability. <laughs> I just want to know like what the next thing is. I'm, you know, I wrote my uh, plans out before Karen and I got married seven years in advance. Executed on all of them until the Lord got me. 
They're like, what are you going to do tomorrow? I don't know. I don't even know what I'm going to do today. I mean, hardly. Do you see what I'm saying? Inheritance is with the Father. He's, inheritance is like that. You're going to walk into your inheritance out of the kingdom of heaven, not by trying to PMC grasp or like Jovet go to the left and grasp, but no. Lord, I don't know, but I'm waiting on you. There's only three times in the scripture that pro kiherzo is used in uh, the New Testament. Now, I, I want to uh, let you see these, and then we'll close this morning. Paul's going back. Uh, now, we just step back into his origin story a little bit into Acts chapter 22. Uh, verse 11 through 15. Listen, he said, Since I could not see, let it hit you just like, you know. Since I could not see, because of the brilliance of that light, I came to Damascus led by the hand of the, uh, those who were with me, a man named Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He came to me, stood beside me, and said to me, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very moment, I looked up, and I saw him. And then he said, listen to this. The God of your ancestors, Ananias saying this to Paul, Saul, who becomes Paul, has already appointed you. He already picked you out. <laughs> Why do I have to go through all that? Yeah, I think and Paul's like, all that wall keeping and being a Pharisee of Pharisees and the Benjamite and all that. Why do I have to go through that? I mean, that's what automatically comes through my mind. I just went through all that. And you already picked me? I wish I had a new earlier. The Lord wants to replace the technocratic with the theocratic. He wants to take our AI system, which I just call adultery and idolatry. He wants you to kick it to the curb. The Lord said, would you rather have Wi-Fi or a Wi-Fi? <laughs> <laughs> she is your advisor, is she not? She has everything in her mouth that you need. Wi-Fi or Wi-Fi? I want to replace. I want to replace the technocratic with the theocratic. Why? Listen, he says he pro, he chose you, man, and I says it's a Paul. Three things. Here's three more to know his will. Listen. To see the righteous one. I chose you, Paul. Prokeherzo, you. Uh, Ananias is saying, God chose you for these three things. It, it, you're, you're hearing back at 26, 16. Now you're here in uh, Acts 22. He said, I chose you. Why? I want you to know what his will is. Uh, the Lord wants you to know what his will is. I want you to see me. Seeing you, seeing me. I want you to know the one who is righteous. Not one based in your own righteousness or lack thereof. I want you to turn your eyes and look up to me. I'm the one. I paid the sacrifice. It's already finished. It's done. I want you to see that. I need you to see that. 
I need you to see that. He wants us to see that. I want you to know what my will is, and I want you to look at me, the one. And I want you looking over there. Look right here. Right? And he says, and to hear the command from his mouth. Well, I don't like to be told what to do. Well, let's just get it right here. The Lord wants you to know His will to see Him as the righteous one so He can tell you what to do. <laughs> if you don't like sovereignty of God, this is not a good uh, message to listen to. Because He is in charge of everything. And then He says, the same thing we see in Acts 26.16 says, Because you will be a witness to all people of what you have what? Seen and heard. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think that Paul's origin story was amazing, listen to the man, this fisherman from Galilee, what he had to say before Paul's story is going to start later on. Listen to Peter preach right post-Pentecost. Listen to what he says. I love this because I'm like, Peter's so different than Paul. He's so different. And he's the one the Lord is going to use to preach this message right out of the gate. Listen to what he says. Because it's going to carry to Stephen. Stephen's going to become a deacon. He's going to wait tables and wash dishes. He's going to take care of widows and orphans. Stephen's going to stand up. Paul's going to be there. All the coaches are going to be late at Paul. Or Saul, who's going to become Paul. It's going to so impact him that God's going to get him a senior apostle out of the deal. It's going to write the books that we're reading today. Because a man earlier on, Peter, a fisherman, is going to preach this out of Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Listen. If I'm going to lay anything in today, you've got to hear the last points here. I'm landing my sermon here. Peter says this. After his sermon, he gets, he's closing this thing out. He says, therefore, repent. He said, you heard all of this, now repent. Matineo. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean hang your head. You're pitiful. You'll never amount to anything. That's not what repentance means. Repentance means look at him. Pick up your eyes and look at the one who's paid for everything. Repent and turn back. Epistropho. Change your beliefs. This is Carol's version in the Amplified Carol. Change one's belief from a technocratic AI to unpredictability. Change your ways. Stop living like you want to be a Pharisee like Paul or a hunter-killer like Gervais. Stop going off and being built out of fear or out of anger. Stop all that stuff. Change your way. Turn back to the Lord. Stop looking for technology to actually reinforce it. Uh, come under my sovereign government of your life and look unto me. I've paid for everything. And listen what Peter says, and I love this. So that your sins may be blotted out. 
Do you know what you know what blotted out means in the Greek? Blotted out. No. <laughs> no, I like it even more in the Greek. It means this. It means to erase. It means to obliterate. Now y'all know why the Lord gave me this message in advance, right? Because I could do some homework. What? You mean to tell me? Hey, listen, are you listening? You mean to tell me that if I met Nao and I look at the one, this was Pete saying. Pete's telling us. He's saying if I look at him and I change my belief system and I come off of this left-right thing, the Lord will block my sins out. He'll not just blot them out in the sense of what we understand as putting that white stuff on your paper when you use those old typewriters. No, he's, I'll obliterate it. I'll tear the whole piece of paper up. I'll erase it permanently. That's what Peter was up there preaching. You have to understand, they understood him in their dialect. We, let us understand it. And, and listen to what he says. So that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Yeah. And I heard this from the Lord. This is in the Amplified Carol version. Not regression. Based in immorality, adultery, left-based repression, or regression of the repressing the truth with a lie. No, no, not in redressing, trying to make yourself look better, put on better clothes, and get everything looking nice on the outside of the cup. Not regression, repression, or redressing. Based in a racist ideology or idolatry that's based in the right and a separation of class distinction and all that. No. From the presence of the Lord you will receive refreshment. Oh, and I love this. So that I might send Christ to you. You see it? What have we been here? Almost 17 weeks today in this Christology and anthropology. I'm wanting to send my very own nature into your being and give you everything that I paid for at the cross. For you. I want to give you my full Christology. For you. I want to give you my full self. And I like this. In the scripture it says... Even Jesus. God gave his own son his full Christology. But Jesus is without sin. Let us not question that. He doesn't have to repent. That's why he has the full Christology. Let's all stand together. Why am I? Who am I? I don't know. And who I am, when I see Him as He is, will be revealed. The revelation of who He is living His life in you is upon you. Look at the One who has completed everything at the cross. Look at the one who is righteous. 
the one who's already fulfilled your justification, the one who's already fulfilled your sanctification, the one who procured so you, who chose you out in advance. It's done. Come into refreshing. No more repression of the truth. No more redressing, but refreshing. So that I might send Christ to you. The very same Christ that I put in Jesus, I will put in you. It's like the best news you're ever going to hear. I was telling Stephen this week in our debrief, I said, I never liked that good news thing. I'm a preacher. I don't even like it. I said, I can't stand it when they say the good news. I've heard that my whole life. It's the good news. Not to me. I never thought it was good news at all. I'm going to work harder, do more, and try to get more, and be nicer. And That's not good news. It has nothing to do with the gospel. Christ's light, Christ's life in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. All right. I never know how to transition this very well, but we're going to take communion together. Someone can come up with a transitional statement after the preaching for communion. Please let me know. But let's go. What? Let's take communion. Thank you, Elizabeth. <laughs> This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. you and may the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may you have peace. Amen. Bless you today. Know when 
my heart is aching for the coming of the Lord. I must get ready now. I must get ready now. I must get ready. desire 